This morning, I want to divert your attention, or or direct your attention, rather, back to Luke chapter 2. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the wise men as we looked at, uh, as we are going through this Advent series, so to speak. Last week, Pastor Nathan spoke on Isaiah chapter 9, that glorious prophecy of the Christ who comes. And this morning, I want to look at a, a third sort of section regarding this Advent, the Advent, the incarnation of Christ. By looking and drawing and directing our attention to where Jesus was laid, the manger. Um, Before I get there though, uh, let me ask you this question. What, What did you want to be when you grew up? What was that one thing that you desired to do? What was one thing that you desired to be? Uh, it's a common question, I think, for kids when they're asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Sometimes, you know, they say, I want to be a doctor or a police officer, or maybe they want to be a sports athlete or a superhero. Maybe they want to be Spider-Man when they grow up, or m- nowadays, maybe, perhaps, they want to be, you know, like an internet influencer, star person, whatever that means nowadays. I- I'll tell you, it- you may find this hard to believe. When I was growing up, the thing I wanted to be was a cowboy, <laughs> I lived, yeah, you laugh, because <laughs> it's a little bit opposite of my character now. But I used to live in cowboy boots, believe it or not. I grew up watching John Wayne films, and I lived in cowboy boots so much that I wore out their soles. And my mom can verify that. That's not just me saying it. I wore them out. I would be out in the front yard pretending I was the quick-drawing John Wayne or whatever. It was either, I used to either say cowboy... Or when I got a little bit older, uh, I wanted to be an NBA star. Obviously, my, you know, it was just because of my knees, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> so those two things are off the table. But I think another common answer, you know, when you ask a kid, what do they want to grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Another common answer, I think, is, or it used to be probably more common, is astronaut. It still fascinates me, uh, the idea of space exploration and travel. I think, I think many decades ago, I think being an astronaut, having that as your, as your life's passion was probably more popular during sort of the heyday of the space race, so to speak. I think it still incites, it excites us and intrigues us, this idea of going to uncharted territory, territories into sort of the unknown frontier of space, so to speak. But I recently, I say that because I recently stumbled upon, I think one of the greatest testimonies for Jesus Christ, and actually comes, believe it or not, from the mouth of an astronaut. It comes from the testimony of Colonel James Irwin. He was a NASA pilot. He flew Apollo 15. He was a part of the fourth moon landing, and he was in fact the eighth man to walk on the moon. And believe it or not, he became an outspoken Christian after he retired from NASA. And he wrote this book, a book I'm still trying to track down. It's called More Than Earthlings, An Astronaut's Thoughts for Christ-Centered Living. And essentially is a book of just his reflections on his involvement with uh, the, the space travel, but also his faith as well. And he makes this incredible statement in this book. One that has never ceased to escape me. One that will always, I think, stick with me. He says this. God, walking on the earth, is more important than man walking on the moon. This, from a guy who's been there, 
For a guy who stood on the dust of the moon and seen the speck of the earth in the distance. And he says, it's more of a marvel. It's more incredible. It's more of a feat that God has put and left his footprints here in the dirt of the earth. Than the fact that man has put his footprints in the dust of the moon. It's more marvelous. It's more incredible. From a guy who's been there. I think about that every time. We come to this Christmas season. We might even say that that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You know, he's in that Charlie Brown Christmas special. He's trying to find out what Christmas is all about. It's about this. The fact That God walked on the earth. The God who spoke and and, and galaxies came into existence. He left his footprints in the dirt of the earth. This is what I think of. Because mankind likes to think of himself a a lot greater than he actually is. We, We think we're the conquerors. We're the saviors. We believe that we have accomplished something by planting our flag in the moon. As if we have somehow conquered space. When we have not even a fraction of the knowledge of what lies in the great frontier. But I think as another, that's another reason why we have Christmas in the first place. Christmas reminds us that we are the ones who get saved. We aren't the saviors. We aren't the conquerors. We're not the ones who go out and conquer worlds and redeem ourselves. We are the ones who get saved. We are the ones who are in distress. Who need a savior to come and rescue us. And such is what we learn, such is what we see and hear in this most famous of Christmas accounts, Luke chapter 2. Maybe you think of a Charlie Brown's Christmas, and you think of Linus reading these same verses. And it sounds cute and quaint. But Luke 2 is not a quaint, picturesque scene, the scene that we always imagine. The first Christmas would never be on social media. It would never be something that would, you would want to write home about. It's, it's too obscure. It's, it's too pedestrian. It's just too ordinary. The things that happen here are just too ordinary. And nothing shows us the, the transcendence of this scene, but also the ordinariness than what served for Jesus' crib. Again, I, we'll get here in a moment, but look at verse 7 where it says... And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. I think about uh, when, when we were expecting uh, Lydia to come into the world. Uh, my mom went out of her way to buy a bassinet so that we had a place to lay Lydia at night when she would sleep. And I think about that. And, and juxtapose how we uh, sort of stressed over where we were going to put Lydia and the fact that Jesus was put in a manger. A feeding trough for a crib. That's where your king of glory laid. That's where your savior was laid in his first night's sleep. 
I want to speak to you about this manger because I think out of all of the sort of uh, familiar things that we know about this passage, to me, what preaches the loudest, what preaches perhaps the most significant sermon to me, is this manger. This manger preaches, and I think it preaches two very significant things, two significant lessons. First, in these first seven verses, I'm going to look at a lesson about Jesus' unsightly birth. Let's read verses 1 through 7 again, because look at what happens. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Let me stop there for a minute, because reading these opening verses, what sticks out to me is just how you are bombarded with names and historical references. Just reviewing it, Luke is adamant about, uh, about properly framing this entire scene in a historical context. He wants you to see that this is true. Luke, of course, the apostle, he's also the companion of Paul. He wrote this gospel and also the book of Acts. He's a prolific New Testament writer, but we also know him as the physician and historian in that he is a very detailed, articulated man. If you read, this is his entire purpose, is framing this gospel in the truth of history so that his friend Theophilus might know. Remember from the first couple of verses in chapter 1, it says in Luke 1, 3, It seemed good to me also, Luke writes, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee, in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. He's framing this entire account of this otherworldly miracle of Jesus coming to earth. He's framing it in history. He's giving the political scene, the social scene, the geographical circumstances into which the King Christ comes. Caesar, Augustus, has called for all the world, it says, all the Roman world to be taxed, to be registered and taxed. It's not an accidental event, not just something that he did or decreed on a whim. I think that's what's most fascinating to me. That yeah, Caesar is the one who issued this decree, but it's a decree that's orchestrated by God. He arranged for this to happen in this way, in this time. He arranged for all of these events to happen according as they did. Why? Because he is sovereign over this moment. And I know that because of verse 6. Verse 6 is an incredible verse. Look at what it says. And so it was... While they were there, Mary and Joseph were there in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. The days were accomplished. God was permitting all of these events to come together so that it could perfectly form and fulfill the great prophecy of Micah 5. 
Micah 5, where it says that thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler of Israel. And here, all things happen according to his purposes. Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem, and it says the days were accomplished. The time had come. God's timing had come. I always think about that. Those two verses. Verses 5 and 6. Where it's talking about Mary is engaged to Joseph. And it throws in there that she's great with child. Already a scandalous. And then it says that she's here. At this place. Away from family. And it says the time had come. God's timing was now right. Think about this for Mary. Think about this. This young Jewish girl engaged to be married. And she suddenly finds herself pregnant. Miraculously pregnant. We know because we can read Luke chapter 1. And we can read Matthew chapter 2. And we, or the end of Matthew chapter 1. And read and know why that has happened. But imagine Mary again. Mary explaining her pregnancy to her friends, to society. The rumors and the gossip and the slander that would surround her name. That she had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. That she had, uh, she had uh, 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 blasphemed herself. You're, you're pregnant with who? You're carrying who? And who's the father? I'm carrying the son of the most high God. <laughs> Imagine many people shaking their head, right? (laughs) Here's Mary. Dealing with the scandal of all of this. And yet, God says to her, the days are accomplished. My timing is now here. My timing is now perfect. Perfect for what I would like to do, which is bring into the world a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It may not be your timing, Mary, but it's my timing. It may may not be your right time, but it's my right time. It's God's timing. This is, to me, I think, incredible. Because God's timing is always better than our own. And it reminds me of that incredible verse from Galatians chapter 4. Let me read it to you quickly. Where... The Apostle Paul is writing, he says in Galatians 4, that, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The days were accomplished. The fullness of time had now come, when now this mission to reclaim the world from Satan's grip could now start To come to fruition. The fullness of time has now arrived. When that long promised serpent crushing seed would now be here. Remember from Genesis 3. That glorious promise which is given to Adam and Eve. That one day the seed of the woman would come. And though he would be bruised by the serpent on his heel. He would crush the head of that serpent. This is where it starts. It starts with an unwed pregnant teen mom. 
who is pregnant with who she says is the son of the Most High God, and they're away from family, and now the days were accomplished when she should be delivered. It's an unexpected, unsettling, unsightly sort of scene. And it's this scene where the mission to crush darkness begins. It begins in darkness. It begins in this unexpected scene of the nativity. Again, look at verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Israel's king did not arrive in any sort of royal birthing chamber. (laughs) He wasn't surrounded by midwives. He wasn't surrounded by essential oils to soothe Mary as she delivered. (laughs) Rather, she's surrounded by the sights and smells of animal life. Surrounded by that spit and smell and stench. And he wasn't just born where beasts dwell. I think that's what's most amazing. This manger preaches to us. He was laid where beasts feed. His crib was a feeding trough. The manger. He didn't have a royal family. His family were like peasants. Everything about this birth. This unsightly birth. Speaks to us. Shows us just the unexpectedness of Christ coming into the world. All the way down to its very first messengers. Which leads me to my second point. Which is a lesson in verses 8 through, uh, down through verse 18. A lesson about Jesus' unsavory broadcasters. Look at it. And there were in the country shepherds abiding in the field. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo... The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. I love the ending of those verses. These dirty, filthy shepherds become preachers. Of this very message that the angels give them. This message of the Christ child. (laughs) It's incredible that it's given to shepherds. Shepherds, you have to know, these men in this day were not people you would want to hang around with. 
Shepherds were nomads. They were sort of drifters. They were sort of homeless, filthy livestock herders. And they were regarded as lowlifes and thieves. They, uh, going back to our initial question, if any child growing up in this day and age were asked, what do you want to be? The last thing they would want to be is probably shepherd. It wasn't something that they were desiring to be when they grew up. It wasn't any kid's dream. They were distrusted. They were regarded as unclean. They were disrespected. They were the last sort of people you would probably tell about your birth. About the birth of any of your kids, let alone a son. You know, on, on social media, you see all those like viral videos of these very elaborate gender reveal parties. I like the ones that don't end well where they like do something and it doesn't work how it's supposed to. Because it makes me sad, but it also makes me laugh. I saw one, I think, where they were expecting this balloon to pop and it just sailed off and it didn't do anything. It just kept going. Which is because they forgot to like tie it down. You know, it's supposed to tie down and it's just funny. But birth, actually, ironically enough, birth announcements in this day and age were actually probably a little bit more elaborate. Especially if you were having a son. Because obviously it would be carrying on your name. But the higher your social status and the greater your wealth, the louder your birth would be announced. You would draw people from all around. You would get nobles and dignitaries and really high and esteemed people. And you would make sure that everyone knows, I now have a son. But instead, look at who this birth is announced to. It's not announced to the king. It's not announced to any governor or nobleman in the surrounding area. Who does it come to? It comes to shepherds. It comes to lowlifes. It comes to people who are outcasts. To people who are regarded as social pariahs. It shows, I think, not only this. It shows the type of clout or lack thereof that Joseph has. But I think it also is the most provocative picture of the type of ministry that Jesus had come to perform. The least likely group gets the first gospel message. They get the first gospel sermon preached to them. And I think it shows Jesus' heart. He's unafraid of our lowliness. In fact, he comes for the lowly. It reminds me of that verse, I think it's Luke 19.10, where it talks about he has come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He has not come for those who are high, but for those who are low. And I think this is the significance of the manger. Because by being laid in a manger, we, have, we never have to question the type of people that Jesus has come to dwell with and to save. Because again, he's laid in a manger. He's not laid on a throne. He's not set down on a high throne above all these people as the king, even though he is. He's laid in a manger. Which is significant because why? It's the least likely piece of furniture to impart fear by any who visit it. <laughs> you didn't have to fear going up to a feeding trough. <laughs> Shepherds didn't have to fear going up to a feeding trough. They might have had to fear if it was a throne. They might have had to be worried for their lives if he had been set on a throne. But it wasn't. It was a manger. And we don't have to fear either. 
Because Jesus was laid in a manger for us. And this manger then becomes a glorious sign which demonstrates the wideness and the freeness of this mercy of God that comes to us. That he's unafraid of our lowliness. He wasn't born into royalty or wealth or into a great abundance of power. He was born into poverty and grief, into chaos and darkness. And he was born into that estate for you. He was born on the bottom rung of a very lowly social ladder. Why? So that we would never have to fear coming to him. He's the God of the brokenhearted, the God of the lowly, the God of the afflicted. German apologist Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. This to me is what this manger preaches. That he is a God of these lowly type of people. Shepherds. He is their God. He is a God who has come to save, yes, even them. To, yes, die for even them. Shepherds, outcasts. He has come to die for even you. Bonhoeffer's statement reminds me of this. From Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher over in London. uh, He says this. The main stress and intent of the incarnation of God in the person of Christ lies with the guilty, the unworthy, and the lost. His errand of mercy has nothing to do with those who are good and righteous in themselves, if such there be, but it has to do with sinners. Real sinners, guilty not of nominal, but of actual sins, and who have gone so far therein as to be lost. This is what this manger preaches. He has come to the lowly, he has come to the lost, he has come for sinners. Because sinners are all that there are. And he comes to save them and die for them. After 400 years of divine silence between your Old and New Testaments. Now is the right time. God begins his mission of reclaiming, remaking and redeeming the world from sin. Get this, not by being a herald prince in a palace. But by being a crying, wailing baby in Bethlehem. With a manger for a crib. He comes on a mission of reclaiming. Not as a violent warrior bent on revenge. But as a crying infant bent on forgiveness. This is the unexpectedness of the incarnation. The ordinariness. The incredible scene of the manger. This is Jesus' birth. The God of all creation. The God of all glory. Who has come to dwell with us. Dwell where beasts and sinners dwell. And that same good news that came to shepherds. is the same good news that we have as well. It's the good news from 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Where the apostle Peter writes. Of the grace that should come unto you. Or from very uh, right here in verse 11. Where it talks about a savior. Which is Christ the Lord is come for 
you. This king is here. Except he looks like a son of God in a stall. He looks like a Messiah who is laid in a manger. He is the Lord of of all who comes as the lowest of all. And he does it for you. This is the message that I am just astounded by. And it comes from this manger. It tells us that this God of Christmas is a God who is not afraid to get his hands dirty in order to make us clean. He's not afraid of our lowliness in order to make us like he is. He comes like we are to make us like he is and to bring us where he is. And the invitation of the manger is the invitation of the gospel, is the invitation that we have here this morning. That in Christ, the very worst of the worst sinners have hope in the mercy of this baby, Jesus Christ. There is no one who is outside the scope of this saving mercy that comes unto sinners. There is nothing that you can imagine that Jesus hasn't already paid for. By his own blood. This is what this manger tells us. It tells us of a God. Again who spoke. And galaxies were formed. And yet. He occupied our realm. As a little baby. And was laid. Not in a beautiful comfy cradle. But was laid in a manger. And that is the very first movement. In the mission of God. To save the lost. And cancel sin forever. It's this infant savior. This baby who was born to die. This baby who is also a king. See going back to. Colonel James Irwin's testimony. That God coming to earth is far more magnificent than we going to the moon. It's the hard truth that we hear at Christmas time. That we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. But the good news is we don't have to. Because a savior, a true and better savior has already come for us. And he brings with him the unspeakable gift, as Paul writes, of relief and redemption and rescue from all of our sin. The savior has come for you. He is laid in a manger for you this morning. He was laid in a manger and he was also nailed to a cross for you. He is unafraid of your lowliness and he has come because of the fact that you are lowly. We can rejoice in that, our Messiah, who is laid in a manger. Let us pray.